We're back here to the Neil Haley Show on the Caregiver Dave Celebrity Segment. I'm excited to welcome program. Caregiver Dave to Sandy. Dave, what's going on? How are you, man? I'm doing great. Summer's here, and we've got our masks off, and I'm just, I couldn't be happier. Yes, we can be happy, but you know what? We don't have a Guinness Book of World Record. I don't have that. Maybe what would be the longest? Uh, <laughs> I'd one time talk about trying to break a Guinness Book of World Record for some people. I saw that in the air, Dave. But basically, that's <laughs> not interesting. Well, this is this is when we're talking Guinness Book of World Records. Well, I tried to stay up uh, interviewing a world record. They were trying to make a world record for radio for the longest hours and they broadcast for like oh. 72 hours in spain oh and i was God. part of it and at 3 a.m i was up up on with them and basically they forgot how to speak english they were so tired so i had to jump off that they just hung hung up on me so because they, we were interviewing some celebrity and we're like what just happened i had to find that but just that just proves that people that want to break a guinness book of world records so introduce our guest i've got two world records here okay that's good guinness world book world record breaker extreme athlete and visionary entrepreneur ben jacoby about his new documentary which shows his unrelenting determination to break a world record in extraordinary fashion i'm just going to let him tell you how he did it because i can't believe he did it ben wake welcome to the show ben thank you very much for having me <laughs> so, no, so, so so ben how where did it first start as an athlete growing up actually um you know growing up i i liked sports but i wasn't any extraordinary athlete it all started in 2015 where i had these stilts which you could see in the background and i was basically playing around with them in australia soon i learned that i could run pretty fast on these stilts and that's when i said i wonder if there's some sort of world record um that led me looking into that Growing up in the 90s, Guinness World Records is, was one hell of an authority. And I saw that the way I'm running, if I give some effort into it and I train properly, I may be able to break that record. Man, those wow. look very similar to the artificial legs that they give some vets when they get their legs blown off. A little springy thing on there. Did you invent that or did you like get, it, uh, get an idea from somebody? No, I did not invent this. It's actually, there's a sport called power bucking, which is uh, oh. mostly uh, stunts on these type of stilts. These are spring-loaded stilts. There is a fiberglass leaf uh, on the back. They're elevated 18 inches from the ground. 18 inches. And they give you some sort of superpowers. I want some. How much do they cost? <laughs> uh, I guess I guess it ranges. Um, I'd say the average pair costs around $400. So, Ben, wow. talk about stilts. What made you put on stilts what was the thought process of that so the original thought process was just you know it seemed i wanted to dress up as a kangaroo as a costume <laughs> and that seemed like a great you know a seemed great like addition a, to that a great idea yeah yeah of being in australia and whatnot but um yeah but soon like i said i um once i understood that in terms of the type of um um physical elements that are that revolve around it i started training on them um, running around them, you know, just like any other endurance. I'd love to see the video. <laughs> yeah. So I actually, uh, you know, one thing led to another and back in 2018 is when I had a little more time and I decided to, um, put this whole thing together. I hired an Olympic coach. We trained, um, you know, three months, I'd say almost every day, anything from, you know, the right nutrition, the regime of, uh, of sprinters. And I learned in three months how to turn from a moderately okay runner to a, um, 
a really good sprinter, especially on these stilts. And the documentary that I put together, which is called Bam Bam Runs Fast, uh, wow. which aired on my YouTube channel, explains the journey I went through um, everywhere from the moment I realized till um, the actual attempt and after. So talk about the realization without giving away. So basically, you just said, "I'm." first you said, I like this, this is cool. Then you looked up the Guinness Book of World Record and you're like, did you think, why did you think you could defeat it? Honestly, <laughs> my, my thought behind this, the guy who held the world record, he just seemed, it seemed like his, his, um, his, his, you know, his body physique wasn't as built for sprinting as mine was. So I actually felt like, you know, if, you know, given the fact that it can be rather dangerous and the fact that I would, I wouldn't mind hopping onto that challenge of, um, getting to those speeds on these, on these stilts, uh, alongside with that, that I felt like my physique could fit, uh, this type of an attempt, um, kind of added everything up together. What kind of speed did you actually get up to and what was his record? How, how much did you break it by? His record was 14.3 for hundred meters. My record, my current record is 13.4. So that's just shy of a oh. second faster. You know, when it comes to sprinting, a second is. That's amazing. Yes. I'm, I'm amazed that, that, that there was somebody who did it and you broke it. I thought you were the guy who actually, uh, you know, did it for the first time. That's amazing. Was right. he the first guy? So from my best knowledge, he wa- I, I only could see his record. Of, that was back in 2012. I don't know if there was someone before him. Um, and again, for me, it was, there was something in the sense of breaking someone else's record. I'm actually, uh, as of now, I'm training for another world record, which is completing a full marathon on these spring-loaded stilts, oh, which will take place. Uh, yeah, it will take place on the, in the London Marathon. And I will be the first one who officially would attempt um, not only half a marathon, but a full marathon on silts. Um, and in order to get the actual world record, it would need to be less than four hours. So this is a different wow. type of um, adventure that I'm going on, and it will require different training. But I think in terms of the mindset, um, hopefully what I've done up till now will uh, help me power through this one. How well. exhausting is this compared to just actually sprinting? You know, I haven't come from a rich sprinting background, so I wouldn't know. Uh, I think when it comes to these stilts, it's a lot about the balance. So in different from regular sprinting, regular sprinting, I'd say you pretty much in the first 10, 15, 20 meters is when you build your balance and you're already up to speed. Uh-huh. And then it's just more about sustaining it. When it comes to these stilts, I'm almost up to half of the way. I'm still, um, you know, focused on building my balance because, you know, being elevated from the ground and you just need to know how to, you know, at those speeds, um, maneuver your body properly. Wow. So interesting. I start thinking about, you know, you hire a professional trainer. So this had to cost some money, right? To do, to break this record. Yes. It, it, how, it, yeah. how old are you, by the way? <laughs> I'm 31 at the moment. Oh my so gosh. It did cost some money. Um, but you know, I believe that in life you, um, you know, experiences, um, records, um, and whatnot are worth as much as someone yeah. would it towards something else. So I think that what I gained from working with someone at that level um, not only gave me uh, the title of the fastest man 
uh, to run on, on spring-loaded silts, but also improved me in other areas of life. You're famous. So, so tell us the once you broke the record, what tell the media then because we're talking and promoting your documentary now. What right. did you do after breaking the record? Because again, you invested that money in training, you accomplished it and broke it. Right. Yeah. So yeah, tell us. So you know, aside from uh, being uh, extreme sports athlete, I'm also an entrepreneur. I, I own and run a few businesses. Uh, to take those three months was um, a lot for me in terms of the time that I invested into it. And I, I'm not going to say I only did this record, you know, to prove something to myself. It was important for me to show the world. I did share with the people who were close to me. I did get some exposure around it. But for the most part, it was important for me to, um, you know, one of my best friends was the videographer who, you know, he was with me throughout the whole process. And he was the one videoing, the, you know, the training, the journey out to where the, um, the record, uh, of, you know, initially was broken, which was at Burning Man. And uh, for me, it was collecting all that, uh, you know, the footage. And one day I said that one day when I have a little more time and then I would actually turn this into something that I would like to show the world. And that's why only recently is when I released this documentary. Um, this documentary also is leading up um, to my next record. And I'm getting a lot of exposure around the attempt. And uh, I think it's great. Did you come up with the, document, the documentary idea? Are you actually doing it? Or did somebody approach you and say, hey, this would make, make a good documentary? So it was actually, it was my idea. Having the footage that we had and knowing the story. And you really have to see this documentary because it's not only, it's not just this, you know, boring sports documentary. There were all kinds of twists and changes and amazing things, you know. Yeah difficult parts. I got into car accident. Um, I was racing a horse. Um, you know, just like there's so much action packed into there and including, uh, very important parts that were not caught on video. Then we, we were able to uh, realize it into, um, animation. So for me, it was, it was knowing the whole thing. I just, I had to put it out there. So it was also a great opportunity for me on the, you know, on the side of uh, the production side, uh, to learn how to put all this together and to learn how to put a story um, into a format where, you know, people worldwide are uh, intrigued and they're happy to see and they're, you know, sharing to their friends, family and bringing back their feedback. I also also have um, other channels on YouTube, which I'm, you know, collaborating with. One of them is called Wonder World, huge channel, love the story. He wants to also uh, feature it. So I feel fortunate and the experience again is, um, you know, means all. Exactly. So, but like I was asking, so the media coverage you got after breaking the record, what do they do when someone breaks a Guinness book, Guinness world record? How does that they, work? They yeah. Break open a bottle of champagne. Now that you, you get something in the mail. How's it work? Yeah. Actually, actually a can of Guinness beer. That's what you crack open. Uh, but anyhow, uh, yeah, you do get the certificate in the mail. Uh, you get listed on the Guinness world record website. And um, I was actually featured on a few of their uh, social media channels. So I was like, on, uh, on, I was featured as, you know, the cover for two episodes on their Snapchat, um, another TikTok. So, you know, there's tens of millions of views around all that. And I did get a lot of approaches um, from other media outlets as a result of that, wanting to know what's going on. Euro News um, in the UK and um, other ones here in the US. Uh, so that's, 
that's what it was um, back then. But there is a, you don't get a big fat check when you break a world record. <laughs> well, you get all that fame and now you've got uh, internet uh, visibility. Uh, that burning figure behind you, is that like a, a foreshadowing that you're going to be like an evil Knievel? You're going to do the next one in a flame retardant suit, uh, something like that? <laughs> so actually, the, the, the poster behind me is uh, one of the posters for the documentary. And that is actually um, the Burning Man um, festivals. That's actually where I broke the record. So again, the documentary, it explains step by step. And one of the difficulties for me breaking this record is I decided to do it at a place where the conditions were far from ideal, building my own track, uh, bringing out my videographers, photographers, land surveyor and whatnot. So, you know, in the poster behind me, you could see um, kind of like a little bit of everything that this documentary yeah. involves. Um, me running fast, the burning yeah. man in the background. Um, what was right. the surface you were on? Because you were in the desert, right? So, which is sand. Did you have to make right. your own surface? What did you do? So I did. It's actually a great question. So for me, one of the um, one of the biggest barriers was was actually building in the middle of the desert this track, and I needed to find a material that was light enough to bring it out there. But then again, you know, sustain the weather, and I chose to go, go with a special type of roofing felt, um, and this roofing felt was, you know, it's just to um, imitate some sort of rubber. It's just a uh -huh. lot lighter. And the good thing about it is that, you know, in when the temperature was right, then it had the perfect grip and it was awesome. But if it was a little bit too cold, it would be slippery. If it would be a little bit too hot, it would be sticky. So I really needed to hit the sweet spot. And again, that's also something that you're able to see in the documentary, um, kind of the tension and the pressure building around that moment. Awesome. Okay. So let's uh, go with the final question Dave always asks is his caregiver question. Go ahead, Dave. Well, I'm a caregiver. I've been caregiving my wife for 25 years because she had a stroke. She lost her speech, became paralyzed on one side. We were in the middle of an empty nest. We weren't expecting anything like that. And so now I'm Dave, the caregiver's caregiver, because I realize I made so many mistakes. I'm teaching other people, other caregivers not to make the same mistakes I make. 30% of caregivers die before their loved ones do. And so I've realized, I, I've written a book. Um, I've realized that everyone is either going to deal with this in one way or another. They're going to be a caregiver or they're going to need a caregiver. Have you ever thought about, you know, caregiving? Have you had it in your life with your family yet? Um, any experiences? I did not have personally one of those experiences. Um, you know, I, I've gone through a few things, I think shorter periods of time uh, in my life where um, I went through a cer certain uh, experience which did require me to, I'd say, caregive um, for short periods of time. Um, situations were not ideal, um, but I'd say definitely as I grow older and become wiser, I think in the future, this would be um, one of the things I would definitely uh, look into. Um, yeah, be careful out there. You don't want anyone having to caregive you. <laughs> right, right. And and Ben, where uh, can people find information on you? Where's the best place they can go? Great. So there's um, obviously on all social media, so Instagram, Facebook, uh, even Twitter, Pinterest. You just type in the Ben Jacoby, and you find me over there. And I do have um, a website, thebenjacoby.com, and my YouTube channel. 
um, which is also the Ben Jacoby. So it's pretty much uh, all out there. Uh, I would recommend if you are interested, when you are interested, subscribe to my newsletter is because that's where I really send out the inner circle updates of when something's oh. happening. And that's when also I invite people to collaborate with me. Um, and things are happening here in the US are happening worldwide. So it's pretty exciting. Awesome. Right. Great. So, ben, Thank you. Great so, the, so yeah, absolutely. Ben, last question. Uh, what other businesses do you currently own? So my main focus these days, it's a business management and marketing company. We provide uh, back office and marketing services for local businesses, mostly in the home services industry. So for instance, there is a business that needs um, any type of support from consulting, marketing, operations. So we'd be supporting those businesses uh, mostly across the U.S., uh, some of the businesses are owned by us. Some of our um, services we offer to other businesses um, for hire. Appreciate it. All right. Well, great job, Ben. Appreciate you stopping by. Neil Haley Show and take care. Great meeting Thank you. you. I'm going to check right, it out. Guys. All right, guys. That was the Neil Haley Show. Take care, guys. Celebrity Slots. Free to play mobile social slot games in the likeness of your favorite celebrities. Making money. Spin to win celebrity experiences through sweepstakes. Free to download, free to play. Yeah, baby. What are you waiting for? Win meet and greets, celebrity merchandise, gift cards, and more. Download Celebrity Slots today. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Dr. Christopher Hall Show. I'm excited to welcome to the program, Dr. Christopher Hall. Dr. Hall, how are you? Thank you for your service. That's why you're, again, on the phone. As you continue to serve us, even, you know, we're dealing with coronavirus, being on the front lines. How are you, Dr. Hall? Well, I'm doing great, and it's excited um, how things are going across the country. Uh, with the infections that are going down and people are out in the sun. So, wow, uh, just uh, doing good. Awesome. Introduce our guest. He's so inspiring and he has a great message. Wow. Well, you know what? This is really something the nation needs right now. And uh, and so, you know, I'm very excited to uh, introduce uh, actually uh, a former Villanova standout uh, when he was playing there, uh, an author, uh, a person who knows a lot about diversity and inclusion. Wow. I'd like to welcome to the show. Mr. Bo Dean Sanders. Welcome to the show, Bo Dean. Thank you. Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Uh, so you were talking to me off there. So you were going, you you played at Villanova what years? Did you know? I was, I transferred to Villanova out of the oldest HBCU in the country, which is Cheney University. And uh, if you guys remember the, uh, uh, Andre Waters, the Philadelphia Eagles, strong safety. Yeah. He he was a senior when I was a freshman at Cheney. And then I transferred to Villanova because Villanova um, brought his program back because they dropped it after Howie Long got drafted to the Raiders. And they dropped it for three years and they brought it back in 84. And so I was there from 84 to 89. 
So you were at the point where I, as I remember, 85 was that miracle year when you beat Georgetown in basketball. So that was, you, that was my freshman year. Yeah, your freshman year. And what, what a, what a crazy fan base film of a football and basketball has, don't they? They really are. They're, they're really into their sports. Well, well, basketball obviously is the, is the number one sport on the campus. And so uh, in terms of its uh, history, our track program is, has a better outstanding uh, history than the football program. But really? the football program, you know, pulls in a, a, a strong third. Okay, we'll go with that. All right, Dr. Hall, what's your first question for Bodine? Oh, well, no problem, no problem, because I'm, I'm very interested in getting into his story and what his message is uh, today for America. But, you know, Bodine, tell us a little bit about how you grew up there in Jackson, Florida, uh, with your mom and your siblings, and what that was like as a child. Well, that's, Doc, that's a great question. I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida. Um, in the book, I refer to it refer to it as the former Southern Confederate South. And I grew up in a predominantly black neighborhood community. I went to an all black junior high, they now call it middle school. And then I went to an all black high school. And so I didn't have any diversity with the way most people think of diversity uh, growing up. I had a, I mean, obviously we had a few, probably more than a few um, white teachers, but mostly it was a black environment. So what's great about my story is Howie Long was the first one to tell me or advise me to put my story on paper because Howie's obviously world traveled. He's been around, he's a ton of experience. And he recognized when someone told him the story that I transferred from the oldest HBCU in the country to Villanova. And so uh, that propelled me to, to seriously think about writing the book. Because again, I grew up in an all, pretty much an all black community. And so I lacked diversity from a white and a black perspective growing up. Wow, and that's important to have diversity, isn't it? And try, oh, yeah, absolutely. A absolutely, and I didn't understand it or realize it until I got to Villanova. Because if you know Villanova, Irish, Italian, Catholic, uh, affluent, what we would call predominantly white institution nowadays, I think they call it traditional white institution. So that was the beginning process of me learning and, and diversity wasn't a strong word in the lexicon in the eighties, right? It was more like melting pot and you know, a few of those other, other words that were used. Um, but that's where I began to experience diversity and understand it and, and go through that process. Go ahead, Dr. Hall, the next question. Wow. And so, and so that's important because his background sets the stage to the experiences that he goes through and, and how we can all uh, go through certain stages to learn about diversity. So now tell me, um, you know, you started off uh, playing football at, at Cheney uh, University. University. Uh, now, so were you some type of standout high school football player? I mean, how did you end up playing football there? 
Well, I was not a standout. Uh, my, my story begins uh, with me graduating high school and not having been offered a scholarship. Oh my. I, had a, I had a few teammates, Kevin Martin, who's a wide receiver who committed and went to Boston College to play with some guy by the name of Doug Flutie. And, and then I had a teammate going to Central Florida. I had a teammate going to uh, Troy, uh, a teammate going to Cheney. So I had a few a teammate going to North Carolina. So I was out. I was one of the guys that didn't have an opportunity to go to college. So but what was what was important to me was not to give up on the dream. So I continued to work out. I got a job and when I wasn't at work, I was working out. And then I was thrown a Hail Mary because my sister, a few of her high school classmates who were in college, my sister was at Bethune-Cookman, which is another HBCU in Daytona Beach. They were work and my godmother were working behind the scenes because they saw me practicing. They saw me doing wind sprints in front of the house from from telephone pole to telephone pole at one o'clock in the morning. And they say, you know, he's really serious. He wants to go to college and play football. So next thing you know, the teammate that was at Cheney was involved in the process. And the next thing you, next thing I knew, I was headed to Cheney University. So that's how oh, I man. got to Cheney. Having that opportunity where it's just to get there and then the progress. So how much you worked your butt off to finally get there. How did you decide? Why did you transfer from Cheney to Villanova? Well, I, I absolutely, that's a, Neil, that's a great question. I love Cheney. And most people transfer out of a school for a number of reasons. They're, especially if you're a student athlete, you're not getting time that you think you deserve, or you don't get along with the coach or you don't like the environment or whatever, right? There's tons, you get homesick. Maybe you wanna move closer to home. There could be a number of reasons. I absolutely love Cheney. It was a beautiful campus in the suburbs, which is similar to where I grew up. I didn't grow up in the inner city. If you're familiar with Jacksonville, Florida, right. it's the second largest city in the United States land-wise, right? So I grew up in a, in, in, you know, in a suburban area. Um, so I love Cheney, beautiful campus, awesome. I enjoyed the experience and I'm a positive person. So I didn't have any negatives, but the opportunity to go from division two to division one AA, I couldn't turn it down because as a kid growing up in the South, Neil, you know this, Right. You grew, you grew up dreaming about playing for Florida, Florida State, uh, the get you know the Gators, yes. Auburn, Alabama, all the SEC schools or ACC schools, right? So I grew up dreaming about Georgia. I mean, I grew up with the Georgia Florida game exactly. in my hometown, right? So I grew up wanting to play Division One uh, football. So when the opportunity presented itself, when I took a trip to Villanova and found out they were starting their program up again. I, I mean, I really couldn't, you know, I couldn't turn it down. I, I, it was, it was the, it was the dream I was looking for. So that's why I did it. Okay. Got Dr. Hall. Next question. Wow. So let's further set the stage here. So what we have is we have a young man who is born in the South. 
he come from a background, uh, we would say probably not so affluent, uh, could be poverty. He ends up, he's not a standout high school a football player, but he ends up playing football. And not only that, he ends up at a Division One school, a very academically challenging school, and a school uh, with a lot of uh, uh, students who are come from very affluent backgrounds. So herein lies our story. Now, Bo Dean, tell us a little bit more about that experience uh, of going through that transition. What was it like? Well, it, it, most people would ask me, was it culture shock? And I would literally tell folks, no, it's not culture shock, even though I am in an, an environment that I wasn't familiar with. But the reason why, I mean, it was still in my mind, be it the front of my mind or the back of my mind, it was still in my mind that I could walk around campus the first three days of freshman orientation and not see anyone that looked like me, right? <laughs> so it, it was on my mind, but I was there for a reason. I was there to play football and prove that I could play on that level. I already proved that I could play on the division two level. Now it was time to prove I could play on the division one level. So with that focus, um in my mind and in my heart i basically let the off the field on campus environment play itself out and because again coming from the south with southern hospitality being friendly being able to introduce myself to folks have a conversation i was able to um adapt and start to embrace my environment with the help of other teammates who had diversity in their background, oh, okay. right? So I had a lot of help with uh, Nate Booknight from Norristown, uh, Jay Curcio, John McGowan, uh, 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 Bob Rosado. So these guys had diversity on the field and off the field growing up. So they were able to help me and guide me along. So I relied on my teammates to help guide me through the process. And it ended up working out. It definitely ended up working out for you. But so was there a challenge involved in that? Oh, absolutely. There was, I'll give you a great example, Neil. Here's a perfect example. I've been coached by all black men my entire career from eighth grade, ninth grade through high school, and then at Cheney. I get at Villanova, there's one black coach on the staff. So what are the chances of that black coach being my position coach? Not, the numbers aren't good, right? The ratio isn't good, the percentage exactly. isn't good. Yeah. So of course, he was not my position coach. So my position coach ends up being a white coach. I'd never been coached by a white coach before. So I had to learn to give my coach the same level of respect I gave my black coaches in my career and in my past. Was that hard? Why was that hard for you? Because I'd never been coached by a white coach before. Wow. Also, Neil, that's a great question. Also, remember where I grew up. I grew up in a segregated black community. I went to an all black junior high school and all black high school. So when you grow up in the South in the 80s, but you were born in 1965, the year of the 
Voting Rights Act. The year before right. is the passage of the Civil Rights Act. Yes. Right. So you're growing up in a South that's different than it is today. Right. So you have and I grew up in a Southern Baptist church. So when you grow up in a Southern Baptist church, the preacher is educating you. The Sunday school teachers educating you right. not just on the, the the spiritual and and the spiritual teachings, but they're also educating you you meaning us the kids on real life situations. Right? Don't go on the other side of town and cause chaos. Don't go on the other side of town and and find yourself in a bad situation. So. When you grow up hearing stories about the civil rights movement and all of the all of the terrible things that we know happened, you tend to you know it tends to stay in your mind. So when exactly. I arrived, at, you know, so when I arrived at Villanova, it wasn't just the environment; it was I wasn't familiar with that environment. Once my teammates again helped me understand that my position coach was there to help me be a better player. And then he and I begin to have a dialogue. It was now okay for him to grab my face mask because remember back in the eighties, you coach right. different than you do now. There's a difference between a white guy grabbing your face mask and pulling you in tight right. versus a black coach pulling you. See, in see this right. is a very interesting thing, Bo, Dean, Bo Dean, uh, because here's the thing man. Uh, I taught at a, uh, a I taught affluent, but then also taught at a Catholic school uh, mm -hmm. that was extra mile foundation. So it was mostly African-American. And mm -hmm. I see when I worked with the African-American males and I was a, a white teacher that mm -hmm. uh, when I would discipline them, how some of them weren't able to handle it because it was a white man. And it's because they were not in that diverse environment to the point of they were used to women, white women teachers. Now your book comes out, proves that fact right there. If I would have read that book or that would be for, you know, teachers out there, especially teaching in the inner cities that are white to understand how you should treat people that are not used. And it's almost an all black school that you have to learn that they're learning as well through this process. Can you kind of explain that more? They're used to seeing white females, but a male white teacher till high they're not going to see that much in elementary school or middle school. Right. Oh, I, I, I agree. I agree. And, and so once I was able to get the chip off my shoulder give my coach the respect, the same level of respect I gave my black coaches throughout my career. And he and I were able to build a relationship, have a dialogue, have a conversation, you know, at the end of practice, pull me aside. I write about this, pull me aside and say, Bodine, what do you want? What do you want to do? What do you want to achieve? Yes. Coach, I want to make the team. I want to be a, I want to be a good player. Bodine, if you listen to me, I will make you a good player. If you listen to me, you're going to make the team because you're one of the best athletes I see. That in itself, when he said that to me, because remember, for years I had been trying to prove I was a good athlete. Right. For years I was trying to prove I was a good athlete. 
once the coach said to me, you're going to make the team, you're a good athlete. I just need you to listen to me and follow and, and, and allow me to teach you, put your head in the playbook. Don't just rely on your athletic ability. You've got to put your head in the playbook. Once I was able to develop that better relationship with him, it was it was on. Game was on. He made me a better player. But I had to get through that process. All right, Dr. Hall, next question for Bodine. No problem. It is an incredible story. And so race against race. Uh, his current book, it kind of it tells a story uh, a little bit about America, how we come from uh, sometimes communities that are, they don't always look alike and sometimes they're segregated. And again, as we're coming to uh, teams, whether it's college teams or whether we're in the military, sometimes we come from racial backgrounds, which are combined with poor. Uh, black is combined with white. And so tell us about your experience going to Villanova where you are now with an affluent, uh, affluent university, predominantly white team, and what experiences did you learn that can help us uh, as a nation uh, communicate better about diversity? Well, again, that's another great question. I was able to learn that not all white people are the same. <laughs> I learned that there was Italian and Irish and Polish and German and the food was different. Everybody cooked based on their heritage and what great recipes were passed down from generation to generation, right? I was able to learn that people dress differently depending on what part of the country they came from. I normally, being from, the, being from Florida, like to dress lightly, right? It, most people think student athletes wear sweats right, all the time, or athletic gear. Sure, I did a little bit of that, but I like to wear shorts, right? I like to wear comfortable uh, t-shirts or, or golf shirts, right? So I was able to learn from this new environment uh, from different people, right? I was able to learn, uh, obviously, the first day I got off the train, <laughs> I saw Mercedes-Benz, Lamborghinis, Maseratis, Porsche. And I went, wow, I'm definitely in a different environment. So I was able to learn the difference between folks who were from New Jersey, who were from New York, from, from Maryland, from Virginia. So all of those things, I mean, it's, it's just like I was learning by going to class, right? I was learning from my environment and learning from different folks and it opened my mind yes. and gave me an opportunity to enhance who I was. Right. And why so long till you wrote this book, Bodine? Why do you think it took so long and why now? Well, again, how long was the first person to, to tell me, put my story on paper and a couple of years went by and then all of a sudden the you guys remember when Colin Kaepernick took the knee yes and when he took the knee yes. and we started that conversation the media started the conversation the nation started the conversation um I would hear on the radio if I was driving 
you know, in my vehicle, I hear on the radio from the media, we need to have the race conversation. Or I'd be watching TV and I hear, you know, a TV host say, we need to have the race conversation. And I say to myself, sometimes I throw stuff at the TV, sometimes I yell at the radio and I say, hold on, athletes on a diverse team have had the race conversation. Why? Because we're together, especially during the season, we're together more with each other than we are with our girlfriends, significant others, families, other classmates. And when you're together that much, mother nature takes over, right? It's just, right. it's going to be part of, the, you're going to have a conversation that's going to, all of a sudden you're going to be talking about, you know, clothes or movies. Right. I write about it in my book. We're talking about um, Bruce Lee movies. And we went from Bruce Lee movies to talking about the movie's roots, the series, wow. right? And so all of a sudden we're a few teammates are in a room, black and white, sitting, having a very deep conversation about Alec Haley's incredible movie roots about right. slavery and you did the thing you learn things about each other when you're having those important conversations that's great all right so dr hall go ahead and summarize bodine sanders well no problem no problem and and, and this his new book race against race uh it strives to bring us together and to talk about our differences to talk about uh, diversity and to uh, uh, increase communication um, among races, particularly during this time here in America. And um, his experience uh, being a poor uh, young man in the South and going to a place like Villanova to play football, meeting very influential people like Holly Long has influenced him. And now he is out to spread the word that we as a nation can communicate about race and make it very uh, productive and interactive. And so, wow, I'm very excited that we had Bodine Sanders on the show today. Thanks a lot, Bodine. I, I appreciate it. And if you don't mind, I'd like to give one more example. I was lucky enough to be friendly with, I call him Mr. Irving. Most people call him Dr. J. He lived down the street from, from my dorm. And I got a chance wow. to hang out with his family uh, because of a classmate. And what also helped me, Neil and Doc, was I saw the relationship between Mr. Irving and Bobby Jones, his teammate. Yes. They had a genuine, incredible relationship with, with each other, not just on the court, but off the court. And I saw it off the court. And I was able to say to myself, as a sophomore, I think it was, if they can have that kind of relationship between each other, I can do a better job, you know, for myself with my teammates and my classmates. And that helped me as well. Right. Where can we pick up the book? Where's the best place? Bob? Great. Oh, you can get it on any of your online retailers, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, all the above. You can go to my website. Uh, I have all your online retailers on my website at bow hyphen dean sanders.com all the information about my book and me my profile is on my website and uh all my media interviews i hope to have yours on as well and uh and so you can get all the information there i appreciate it absolutely we'll have that we appreciate you coming by 
Bodine, and uh, thanks for uh, coming on. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right, guys, that was the Dr. Christopher Hall Show. Take care. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Rob Roselli Show. And I'm excited to welcome the program, Rob Roselli. Rob, what's going on? And we were talking off air about costs, how they're going up through the roof. Look at gas prices. Look at costs of every item. All that's going to do is hurt the middle class, isn't it, Rob? Well, yeah, inflation is the so-called hidden tax, and that's that's what it is. I mean, basically what inflation is, it's not, I mean, the, the official government defines it as too many dollars to chasing too few goods, and then, it, you know, the government has to raise interest rates to cool down the economy and all this sort of thing. It's all this economic nonsense, this 200 IQ Harvard Business School nonsense that nobody really understands that covers over what inflation really is, which is just a devaluation of the U.S. dollar. So <laughs> the dollar, you need more dollars to buy things. That's why the cost goes up. That's what inflation really is for the most part. There is to an extent a demand for goods, but really it's just the government printing too much money, the so-called stimulus and, and this and that. And that's basically what it is. Just, Similar in principle to a game Monopoly, where the banker would hand out free money to all the other players. And what's going to happen to the, the cost of the properties? The cost of the properties is obviously going to go up. Even the cheapest property is going to go up in, in cost because everybody has more money to spend, more paper dollars to spend. And that's what inflation, that's basically what it is. So in other words, the cost went up, but not necessarily the value. The value didn't go up correspondingly. And that's basically what it is in principle. That's what inflation is. It's a little more complicated through that. But when you boil it down, that's what we're talking about. And I find it very interesting that the government of Russia has recently dumped the U.S. dollar in its sovereign wealth fund. So that's another issue that people aren't really talking about, that if demand for the dollar the so-called petrodollar, if that decreases or goes away, then we're going to have some real problems. And basically what that means is that all transactions, international transactions, you know, buying oil, especially, that's why it's called the petrodollar, has to be done in U.S. dollars. And I believe that agreement was made at Bretton Woods agreement back in the, right after World War II. But if people stop using the U.S. dollar, if other countries stop using the U.S. dollar and all those U.S. dollars start flooding the markets, demand for the U.S. dollar is going to go down even more, which means, you know, if these countries are dumping all their all their U.S. treasuries, then we're going to have some real issues because then that means demand for the dollar has gone down and all these printed dollars that are floating around the world are going to come home and really exacerbate the quantity of money sitting here in the United States, the pile of money. Remember, I said before, it's like a monopoly game. So even more money is going to come home, more paper dollars, and you're going to have hyperinflation. And this is similar to what happened in Germany between World War One and World War II, the Weimar Republic. I mean, people were people were walking around with wheelbarrows full of money to buy a loaf of bread, or they were, they were literally burning their money for heat. That's how... It, that's how valueless the money became in in, in pre-World War II Germany. And we're headed on the same path, and it's not a good one. So I don't yeah. know if people are really talking about the dangers of that. But anyway, 
they're not because they're not going to talk about it yet, but it's because everyone is still, I think they did the perfect thing with all the costs going up. They opened everything up. So it's kind of like an agenda, like, okay, you guys are vaccinated. You can go out and do your thing now. And so people are busy spending their money from their stimulus checks and not seeing what's about to happen because a lot of people save their stimulus checks for vacation time, right, Rob? And then next year when it gets September or October and the school year starts and they see the cost of everything going up and people being laid off because companies aren't going to make their bottom line, then the reality will set in. The executives will be laid off. We'll go back into the same days of the Obama administration in ways. Yeah, well, you know, economically, you know, I'm not sure what will what'll happen, what'll transpire, but that sounds plausible, but I just know that the value of the dollar is gonna go gonna keep going down as you know, the dollars become more dilute. And yeah, how is just, Yeah. I was about to say, how's the pound valued more than a dollar? Really? Can you well that I'm 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 not an expert on, on international finance. I'm I'm talking in general principles. I mean Yes. If you really want to find out about, you know, how, how the U.S. currency is valued against, relative against other foreign currencies, I mean, I'm sure there's websites out there that you can go to. I'm talking in principle, you know, it basically is, is what I'm, you know, I don't, I don't sit here. I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I'm some kind of Harvard, you know, 200 IQ Harvard economist. I can sit here and, and, and talk nonsense like a lot of these guys do when they, when they get on TV and, they talk about the Fed and stimulus and all this other stuff that nobody really understands. Is, and that's done on purpose. I mean, the economy, you know, economics, the, the the subject of economics is, is really, it's really done on purpose. It's done, it's made complex. And on one level it is complex, but on the fundamental level that I'm talking about, it's really quite simple. And I can tell you this as well is that they're suppressing the price of gold and silver. And the reason gold and silver are being suppressed is because they would be real indicators of inflation. So in other words, if they were allowed to the true value of of gold, you know, the supply versus the actual demand, you would see real inflation because those are real those are real hard assets as opposed to the US dollar, which is just a paper currency. So in other words, if gold went to a thousand dollars, and you know, or it already is, but it, let's say gold went to say ten thousand dollars an ounce, and silver went to a thousand dollars an ounce, you'd, you'd see what you'd really be seeing is first the demand for hard currencies as people try to get away from the paper currency of the U.S. dollar, but you'd see inflation. It's basically what that's saying is that the the value of the dollar is diluted. So you need much more of them to buy real physical money. So they keep the, the prices of gold and silver suppressed on purpose to, to hide, to cover over the fact of real inflation, but they can't really do that anymore. And another way they, they hide inflation is they change the, they change the way the inflation is encountered. I was, I was watching the guy, Peter Schiff, who was one of my favorite economists the other night on Fox News, and he made an interesting comment that basically, the the reason 
or the reason that inflation is not as high as we'll be having in the 70s is they, they count inflation differently today than they did in the 1970s. And according to him, if they counted inflation at the, according to the same way they did in the 1970s, you know, it would be something like 10 or 11%. Right now, the government's telling us inflation is only like 2 or 3%, but they don't tell us how they count inflation. So they play games with the numbers. I think it was Winston Churchill that said, you know, lies, damn lies, there's lies, damn lies in statistics. So the government changes changes the way they count inflation to keep the to keep the masses, you know, keep keep the masses calm is basically what they're doing. You know, keep us mind numbs, you know, inflation's normal, it's it's whatever, it's two or three percent, but he's saying it's more like Ten or eleven percent, and that's just getting started. It's only going to get worse from here as the government keeps printing money, and and Biden keeps coming up with these six or seven trillion dollar budgets that we just we just can't afford. Especially if people are dumping U.S. Treasuries, the government's not going to be able to borrow the money that's out there already. It's going to have to print more money to, to come up with all this stuff, to come up with all these government programs to pay for all these illegal aliens that are coming through and, you know, pay for all these stimulus checks, et cetera, et cetera. It's only, I have to print more money. And that's, and that's a recipe for what inflation really is. As we, just, as we discussed a few minutes ago, it's just, it's just a, a monopoly. Remember, it's just a, the banker monopoly handing out more paper money to all the other players. In principle, that's exactly what the government's going to need to do. So, we're heading down a, a path that's not good, Neil. No, I know. Inflation is going to hit. So. It's, it's a very bad situation. I agree with you. And But what's that's not going to hurt everyone, but it's going to hurt the people that voted for the president they voted for, right? The people that have skill sets, which I mentioned off air, and that are, I guess, competitable anywhere in the world, right? Meaning what you do, what I do are things that not many people have a skill set to do. So they're always going to be in need for our services. However, for the people that don't have the greatest skills or looking for some, you know, the opportunity to work, they're going to be just paid by the government. And it's very scary. Yeah, but that can't go on forever. I mean, you can't just. I mean, think about it. You, the government just can't sit there and print money. I mean, like I said, it can lie and obfuscate, and and you know, and and for a time, you know, with all the Harvard economists, you know, about what the Fed and the Federal Reserve. Remember, the Federal Reserve is just an illegal, it's an illegal entity. But anyway, we're not talking about that right now. But just think about what we mentioned before, and you just you just can't sit there and 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 print money, it's just not gonna work. You're just, you're just gonna create hyperinflation and that's basically what, what, they're, um, what they're planning on doing. It just, you just can't do it, especially if they, can't, if they can't sell US treasuries and borrow the money, they have to print the money. So it's just, it's just not gonna work. You know, eventually the, the system has to break and we have to go into hyperinflation. They can only keep it suppressed for so long and then then we're off to the races. So um, 
Yeah. So I don't know what else to say. <laughs> but you pre predicted this, uh, Rob, and that's the, yeah. the truth. So where people can check you out, again, yeah. is boxsunglasses.com. You can follow Rob on Twitter at Rob Roselli, where he's uh, definitely talking about these concerns he has for this country, for our nation, where it's going. My take in all this is, like I said, if you want Europe, it's coming. And it's not Europe, the Visegrad four nations. You're we're talking Europe like Germany. We're talking Europe like Italy, right? This is, or, or even worse, right, Rob? Well, I don't, yeah, in terms of the economy, probably even worse. I mean, like Spain, maybe. Yeah. Oh, gosh. So go to boxofsunglasses.com, purchase Rob's book, reach out to Rob. Rob will be a guest on many different podcasts coming up in this summer. And uh, Rob, appreciate you coming by. All right. Yes. And remember, the most important thing in these end times is don't forget God's Simple Salvation Plan and the website, again, boxofsunglasses.com. And my books are available on there people are interested and we can talk about those on a future show but anyway exactly rob appreciate it rob okay take care man thanks i got that all right guys that was the robert sully show take care